Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. From the Commonwealth Club of California, this is Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton, and today we're discussing whether your buying decisions can influence corporate behavior. When Nordstrom's was targeted recently for carrying Ivanka Trump's fashion line, the company stopped carrying the merchandise, citing poor sales. Ivanka Trump's company says sales elsewhere are up dramatically since then. Consumer boycotts of companies have long been used as a tactic to vent frustration and punish corporate behavior. Most have fizzled or failed. A few have succeeded. On the program today, we'll talk about using your pocketbook as a weapon and the role of individual action in addressing climate change and other issues. Our guests are two advocates. Annie Leonard has been an activist most of her life. Her video series, The Story of Stuff, chronicles the life cycle of material goods and has been viewed online more than 50 million times. She's currently executive director of Greenpeace USA. Shannon Coulter is a reluctant and recent activist. For years, she was a marketing and communications consultant advising companies on their branding and digital strategies. During the 2016 election, she co-founded the hashtag Grab Your Wallet campaign focused on Trump family businesses. Please welcome them both to Climate One. Uh, welcome both. Uh, I'd like to start with you, Shannon Coulter. Take us to the evening, the day in October of 2016, when you saw the Trump tape, when he bragged on that bus with Billy Bush about sexually assaulting women. Yeah, I was, um, I think that happened on October 7th, and I think on October 11th, I was, um, like many people, and women in particular, just experiencing a huge range of emotions about it, anger, but also a lot of energy, and not really knowing what to do with that energy, but wanting to have some sort of formal response to it. Um, I was raised by my parents on Nordstrom. I'm one of those, we're one of those families where, you know, Nordstrom is like almost a family tradition where we go to Nordstrom and holidays and, you know, I'm in business presentations, I would use them and as a, an example of good customer service. And I was on the website one night and 
encountered a pair of Ivanka Trump boots, I think, and just started to feel some really deep ambivalence about the fact that one of my favorite companies was doing business with the Trump family at the time. She was campaigning for him very heavily on the campaign trail at the time and also marketing her fashions from the campaign trail. And I started to feel like, hey, this company that I love is profiting from a campaign that I regard to be overtly hateful toward women, toward people of color, toward the LGBTQ community, toward immigrants, toward a religious minority. Um, I don't feel good about that. I don't know if I can do business with companies that are doing business with this family anymore. So I started to tweet about it, and I got such an immediate and a strong response to those tweets that I felt a responsibility to do more. And then the other thing that was going on, which is worth mentioning, is that I was also at the time having memories come up of a time that I experienced sexual harassment in the workplace, which... You know, in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't, certainly wasn't the worst case that I've ever heard of. Most women have, you know, stories they could tell you. Um, but, I, I, you know, that was over 20 years ago. I didn't think that that was even still something that I could remember, let alone have it come up so directly as a result of a news, you know, story. So that was interesting, and that was definitely related to the birth of Grab Your Wallet. Though there's lots of incidents of uh, inappropriate sexual conduct in, in the workplace, uh, sex scandals at Fox News, elsewhere. Why, why, was, why was this time different? Yeah, it's a really good question. There have been, you know, obviously, you know, sex scandals with respect to the church, with respect to the military, too. So why did this particular one bring up those memories for me in such a strong way? I think it's primarily because both Donald and Ivanka Trump position themselves first and foremost as business people, and that's how I think of myself, too. And some of the companies that are doing business with the Trump family, like Amazon and Zappos and, um, you know, companies that I regard first and foremost as tech companies almost, are my clients, you know, are in my, in my backyard. These are the people, Elon Musk, you know, Tesla. These are people who, who could be in my business sphere on a day-to-day basis, and I think it was more personal to me because of that. Is Nordstrom based in Seattle? Nordstrom is based in Seattle, yeah. So there's a Seattle connection here, Amazon, uh, Nordstrom. Annie Leonard, you went to school, grew up in, in Seattle. So tell us how you came to the, the story of stuff, which became such a big phenomenon. Then we'll get into the other topics. With Jim Nordstrom. He even went to my high school. Really? Yeah. Okay. So there's... <laughs> um, I um, have been involved in environmental stuff since literally as long as I can remember. That's why it's such an interesting contrast here that we both end up resisting Trump from such different paths. I grew up in Seattle in a very environmentally aware family, did a lot of hiking and camping, loved the forest, thought I would become a forest activist when I grew up, went to college in New York City, which is an odd place for a forest activist to go, (laughs) but it turned out to be very fortuitous because that's where I started putting together um, supply chains. You know, growing up in Seattle, I would look at the clear cuts of the forests, and as a as a kid, I didn't know about moderation of the hydrological cycle or carbon sequestration or all these th- reasons that we actually need the forest. I would just look at those clear cuts and, and feel in my gut something was wrong. It was like a scene of violence. So I um, went to New York City, and there I became mesmerized by the bags of garbage on the sidewalk in Manhattan. <laughs> it is just incredible, the bags of garbage. And that's where I picked up my habit to the great embarrassment of my teenage daughter of looking in garbage wherever I go, because <laughs> you can find out so much about a society by looking in the garbage. Mm -hmm. And so I started looking in this garbage on Upper Manhattan, Upper Broadway, and what I saw in there was paper. And I realized, oh, that's where my forest is going into these garbage bags. I started putting it together. And so then I said, well, where do the garbage bags go 
when they're, when they're gone. Um, they were there every night. They were gone every morning. So I took a field trip to the landfill where New York City's garbage goes, which is actually called Fresh Kills Landfill. And it was a um, life-altering moment that I will never forget where I stood there as a sophomore in college and looked out and as far as I could see was waste. And there was um, books and food and teddy bears and shoes and things that I had been taught to cherish and respect and not to waste. Um, and so it struck me two things. One is that we had built our economy on an unsustainable use of resources. And the second thing is that it was being kept secret. So right then and there, I said, I'm going to figure out why this is happening, and I'm going to tell everybody, and I'm going to change it. And that's, that was in 1983, and that's what I've been doing since then. And you're, so you're kind of the, the you know, uh, uh, icon or a queen of don't buy too much crap you don't need. Uh, <laughs> how do you feel about boycotts and, and consumerism as a, as a lever for policy change and corporate change? Ambivalent. I feel ambivalent about it. On the one hand, yay if people are thinking about using their dollars to promote good instead of bad. That's fantastic. Um, my, I, still, I have somewhere between unresolved feelings to actual outright concerns, though. Um, one is... I don't believe that um, changing your purchasing habits is a good way to drive change. When you actually look at the data about real-world change, I don't think that's a powerful lever to make change. And I'm busy. I want to I spend my time pulling the levers that yield the most change. When you look at um, boycotts in history, the ones that have made change, like the grape boycott, um, the Montgomery bus boycott, those have been deeply linked with organizing political action, movement building, social movements. That's the way that they make change. So I, so I have the practical thing, but fine, if it doesn't make that much change still, it's great if it gets people involved, all that. My deeper concern is about the, um, the mindset or paradigm that it is, or the, the story that we tell ourselves about how you make change that is being promoted with consumer campaigns. And that is, if we tell people, buy this instead of this, it helps make change. So it's, you know, go to Pete's instead of Starbucks, because Starbucks has a store in Trump Tower, or go to Ann Taylor instead of Macy's. I'm worried that that reinforces a, a narrative that concerns me in society, which is that our greatest source of power is as consumers. And so we, ha we have an over-identification of consumers, any, be, uh, being consumers anyway in this country. I mean, it is the primary way that we communicate with each other. It's the primary way that we demonstrate our value. It's the primary way that we're spoken to. And so it's, it's almost like we have two different muscles, and our consumer muscle is so well-developed because we are asked to be consumers all the time. I mean, so much that the word consumer and human being are used interchangeably. It's like our primary purpose in life, whereas our citizen muscle is atrophying. And so the problem with that is that when we're faced with threats as enormous as we are faced today, you know, um, climate change that is, that is literally threatening the future of agriculture on the earth, um, babies being born pre-polluted with 165 industrial chemicals already in their blood, the actual rollback of a century of environmental and social projects, these are enormous problems. And if our consumer muscle is so validated and nurtured and, and stroked, then we think, well, okay, I'm going to buy Dan Taylor instead of Macy's. That's not really commensurate with the scale of the problem, and it's, it's reinforcing that our biggest source of power is by making responsible consumer choices, which, yes, you should make responsible consumer choices, of course, but the real way that we make change at the level needed is by organizing, it's movement building, it's political power, it's working together as engaged citizens for big, bold change. So, so that's my um, explanation of what, what doesn't quite sit right to me.
we should buy Coulter, this instead of this approach. Shannon Coulter, you, you were kind of uh, drafted into this by this, <clears throat> this moment. You didn't sit back and say, what's the biggest the way that I can make the most change on the world? But I'd like to hear your response to what Annie just said. Um, I think it's an oversimplification. I think that the, the action that people are taking is not to shop at Ann Taylor versus Macy's. The action that people are taking is to communicate with some of the most powerful institutions in our world to say, we don't support you doing business with extremists. Um, this, this particular movement that I'm involved in is not a partisan one. It's not about Democratic versus Republican values. It's not about progressive versus conservative. We actually have a fair number of registered Republicans participating in Grab Your Wallet, many of whom are LDS Mormons, which I find really interesting. For them, participation is an expression of their basic humanitarian values. And the ask and the action is to say to corporations, to media outlets like Fox and Breitbart, um, you can't rely on my consumer dollar if you are going to also do business with extremists, if you are also going to be publishing this extremist rhetoric that then foments racism and misogyny and xenophobia in our society. You can't, you can't count on me, a woman, as your core customer base if Nordstrom, for instance, you have an all-male senior executive team, which they have. Um, and I think it's more about... Um, that than it is about uh, identifying as a consumer. I, I mean, I also personally find it really exciting to watch women in particular flex their consumer power. Women in our particular country have, haven't had a lot of it for very long, and it's, I think they're really coming into their own now with it. It's, you know, when you uh, are born now as a, woman, as a girl, you are pretty much expected to have a career in most, you know, in many, you know, circumstances, which I think is you know, it's new in my lifetime. It was n new for my mom, and I was the first generation in my family where it was pretty much expected, you go have a job, you go make money. And so I get really excited when women flex that consumer power. Do you think America, as Annie Leonard said, over-identifies as consumers, sort of blurs consumers? For and sure. I mean, unquestionably. Absolutely. We're, we're way too materialistic as a culture. We see way too much advertising. But I don't, I don't think the answer is to pretend like that can somehow go away tomorrow. I think the answer is to use that in favor of the values that we hold dear. And it's, it's also, I mean, elections only happen every so often. You can vote at the cash register every day. Um, so, and I think it's a pretty easy thing to do for most people. Any letter, a lot of people come to Climate One programs and they, you know, say, okay, what can I do? And as Shannon just said, you know, elections are every couple of years. Uh, you, not everyone's going to go in a march and you, you, maybe you do that and the march is over and then what? So, you know, we, we spend money every day. Michael Pollan says, vote with your fork. Uh, it does seem that purchasing is something that's accessible to people every day. I absolutely am a fan of, of making responsible choices when we purchase. I want to be super clear about that. I think we should buy the least toxic, least exploitative, um, least misogynist, you know, least bad product out there. But don't absolutely. fool yourself that you're changing the world. Yeah, but don't call that... Um, yeah, don't call that changing the world. I get worried when I hear people say, I want to vote with my dollar because... Um, Exxon has so many more dollars than me. Um, <laughs> Walmart has so many more dollars than me. Why would I want to 
engage in a place where I am so outnumbered. I actually want to get people to vote with their vote. And a lot of people don't vote. And in between elections, there's not, there's the presidential election every four years. There's lots of other elections and there's lots of other things we can do. I mean, one of the great things about such a gigantic mess that we're in is that it's almost like an unlimited smorgasbord of activities of things you could do. (laughs) So um, that, you know, that you can march, you can pass policies in your town, you can work for public transportation, you can work for healthy food in your schools. Um, You know, I mean, literally you could do almost anything and and that all is good but I like the things that build power I like the things that shift the dominant power relationships in our society and that's people coming together getting to know each other organizing building power engaging in the political process engaging in our democracy so yes use your use your consumer dollars responsibly but i i see that kind of like floss your teeth wash your hands after you use the toilet these are like basic <clears throat> adult functioning is you know do not buy exploitation those are just those are not political activism we're talking about uh, political activism and consumerism at climate one i'm greg dalton my guests are shannon coulter and annie leonard we took to the streets and asked people about boycotts and pressure campaigns here are some of their thoughts which may surprise you Boycotts, let me think. Yeah, I've participated, but not for a long time. Do I think they work? Yes and no. Okay, the one where everyone was going to quit buying gas on a Thursday, that was dumb because everyone had to buy more gas on either Wednesday or Friday. I remember the grape strike when we all stopped eating grapes back 30, 40 years ago. It definitely worked. I think the pushback against Amazon for its labor abuses, I I participated in it, and I would argue that it probably did have an impact, but I'm back to buying from Amazon now that they appear to have curtailed some of the the worst warehouse abuses. If something were to directly impact the Asian American community, as I do identify as Chinese American, I feel like it would influence me, but at the same time, I don't know if I would do anything unless it directly affected me in any way. I wish what I'm about to say wasn't true. But I tend to think that really legislation is much more effective. Consumer boycotts are always likely to miss out, hit things that happen to be high attention without hitting underlying issues. They become less focused and moreover, they tend to be short-lived. Something that I've actually struggled with on the personal level is I haven't divested yet from Bank of America. I use Wells Fargo. In a perfect world, this wouldn't happen. But I, but I can't uproot my banking just because I don't like pipelines. That was a small sampling of uh, consumers' thoughts about boycotts and hashtag activism. We did a poll on Twitter. We asked people the question, do you think that boycotts and protests are useful in influencing and changing policy? 41% said no. 8% said yes for the symbolism. 23% yes for the visibility. And 28% yes, they lead to change. Uh, Shannon Coulter, you're not focused on policy. You're focused on corporate behavior. What has hashtag grab your wallet accomplished so far? Well, 23 companies have been dropped from the list, and the goal of a successful boycott is to get the companies on the list off the list. And so that includes some big publicly traded companies like Nordstrom, Kawasaki, Sears, Carnival Cruise, Jenny Craig. And in many cases, I've actually been contacted directly by the companies on the list to say, let's have a conversation about how to get off. Um, the list. And so those negotiations and conversations are always in play. And that, I can guarantee you, wouldn't be happening if they weren't hearing from customers at scale. 
Um, so the goals of our boycott are not policy-related. They're not politics-related. They are cultural. They are about respect and inclusion and about changing our culture. So you're engaging with companies. What do you think about people like Elon Musk being on the, the president's economic advisory council, et cetera, is, or is a place <clears> for <throat> that kind of engagement? Some people say, hey, it's better to have some sane people in the room. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I'm, yeah. not, so I'm not saying Musk is sane because of... Yeah. Um, I totally, I totally understand that line of thinking, and I respect anyone who feels that way. I understand where they're coming from. I come from a place of feeling like, for somebody like Elon Musk, again, somebody that I consider sort of in my sphere of, of work, um, Travis Kalanick of Uber, Sheryl Sandberg, uh, to be in the same room and smiling and chatting with Donald Trump and having their picture taken with him, for me, that feels like tacit approval of what he's done and what he's said. Um, and I, I completely understand somebody having a different interpretation of that. I have my own experiences. But for me, it feels bad. And those executives, by the way, are not on our boycott. Their companies are not on our boycott list. They're on the FYI part of the list. The boycott of part of the list is only for companies that have an explicit financial tie to the Trump family. Annie Leonard, did Al Gore get used when he met with Donald Trump? I sure think so. I mean, he went there. There was so much hype about oh, Donald Trump is going to listen about climate change. Isn't Ivanka wonderful? Thank goodness she's there. Um, and pictures of him leaving. And not only did nothing change, but Trump was worse um, right, on climate. So I think it's exactly what um, she was saying, that it provides a cover. or an, um, A lot of people call them enablers. If rational people with good values who understand science engage with him, it implies a consent or it, it, it makes him appear more normal than he otherwise is. And I believe in engaging with people with whom I disagree, but there is a limit to that. When someone is so morally repugnant, is so threatening to our communities and our values and our future, there's a line at which you have to say, I will not engage with you, partly because there is no rational cell in your body with which to engage, but also <laughs> um, doing so gives my stamp of, of endorsement or validity to him. So I really do agree. It's, it's um, enabling where we have, to, um, distant, we have to be really careful not to normalize Trump and Trumpism. And Shannon Coulter, what does the world look like if, if uh, other than getting companies off your list, wh what's the bigger vision for hashtag grab your wallet? The bigger vision is to become a more centralized resource for consumers to flex their consumer power in the direction of inclusion and respect. Um, and we already see that with the sort of like preemptive leaving of Fox News that advertisers started to enact once the Bill O'Reilly stuff really started to play out in the news cycle. We saw big companies like Mercedes just preemptively leave um, because they knew that movements like Grab Your Wallet and Sleeping Giants were coming. They, we, they, knew, they knew that, and Color of Change had been working on it for two years, so they, they knew that this momentum was building, that um, organizers were getting together and talking about it. Um, to your point about you know, the need for uh, people to organize on the ground, that's happening. You know, we're, we're all talking to each other. I meet with indivisible people. I'm flying to New York tonight to do the, more of that. Um, I partnered with the Women's March. You know, like these people who are doing these movements are talking to each other and companies know it and they're paying attention. So I think it looks like um, big, powerful institutions becoming more responsive to individual people and their lives and their values. 
We're talking about changing tolerance, social norms. Uh, Annie Leonard, uh, we saw that very swiftly with uh, marriage equality. Uh, not so swiftly, but it, once, it, once it started to change, it changed quickly. How is that happening with regard to fossil fuels and, and climate? When is getting on an airplane going to be like you know, killing a puppy? It's like things that people just don't do. Well, is that you're talking about United? Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, uh, I think those social norms are changing all the time, and there's different things that we can do to hasten that. Um, one is that we can provide um, so, what, what scientists call social proof or social license. It's like permission to change your behavior, and the way that you provide social proof or social license is by having other high-profile people or cultural influencers do these things. So the more that we can enroll people that others look up to, to, to change their behavior. That's an important piece. Another thing, though, that we can do is work to make the alternative that's environmentally sustainable just as easy and just as cheap. Uh, what, what I like to think of is, is our whole economy is a big system. If we are trying to do the right thing and it's harder, that's like sort of a metal detector to find a flaw in the system. If, if clean energy is more expensive than fossil fuel, that is a systems flaw. That doesn't mean we should keep using fossil fuel. We need to remove the billions of dollars of subsidies fossil fuels get that make it artificially cheap. We need to figure out how to change the system so that the, doing the environmentally correct thing is the cheaper and easier thing. Shannon Coulter used to work for a solar company that was trying to do that. Do you think that uh, you can see that day when solar is the default cleaner? It's not just an elite thing for uh, liberals on the coast? Yes. One of the most exciting things that I saw happening in the industry at that time, which was about 2009 to 2012, was that the business case for solar was really strongly being made. And that's why I got into clean energy at that time was that I wanted to help make that business case to big companies to do that. Um, so I was less interested in the environmental narrative around clean energy and more interested in the business case and making it more accessible to residential consumers as well. Um, just, you know, hey, you want to keep handing over $200 worth of your paycheck every time you get a power bill, or would you put, rather put a couple of solar panels on your roof and not, not do that? Um, so that was fun and exciting, and it's exciting to see how it's moved forward. One of the most promising things I hear is uh, ads for solar power on AM sports radio, where it's clearly targeted at Joe Sixpack, and yeah. it's targeted on price, not virtue. It's not like your you know mom will think you're yeah. a good. You know, it's, right. it's targeted. And we've on. seen you know we've seen some like unfortunate things I think play out in that sense. Like there's a little bit of a used car salesperson vibe to solar sometimes with like <laughs> you know with like you know leasing deals. I think have you know yeah. proved to be a little bit. I think consumers are rightly skeptical about that sometimes, but I think that in general, people now know that it is not, that there's a, there's a financial case to be made for solar. We're talking about activism and clean energy at Climate One. You just heard Shannon Coulter, co-founder of the hashtag Grab Your Wallet campaign. My other guest at Climate One is Annie Leonard, executive director of Greenpeace USA. I'm Greg Dalton, and it's time for our lightning round. Brief questions in one or word <laughs> phrase or answers. This first one is association. I will mention a noun, and you will give me the first thing that comes into your mind unfiltered. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. Um, <laughs> Annie Leonard, Wells Fargo. Standing Rock. Shannon Coulter, L.L. Bean. Linda Bean. Who's a family member that you want off the board. Board member. Uh, board member. <laughs> um, Annie Leonard, a consumer product in your home that you don't want anyone to know about. <laughs> Pantene hair conditioner. <laughs> <laughs> 
Shannon Coulter, a branded thing in your home that you don't want us to know about. My New Balance sneakers. I bought them before the election, and I haven't quite been able to get rid of them yet. Annie Leonard, Alec Baldwin. Oh, I love him. I just love, total love. <laughs> uh, Shannon Coulter, Melissa McCarthy. Uh, seven, her great fashion line. <laughs> Didn't know she had one. Maybe Spicer will start wearing it. Uh, okay. Um, <clears throat> this is true or false. Annie Leonard, some environmental organizations enable corporate greenwashing. Totally. <laughs> Shannon Coulter, some environmentalists turn people off with their righteousness. 100%. <laughs> Annie Leonard, uh, true or false, one Greenpeace slogan is, quote, we have no permanent friends and no permanent enemies. True. Shannon Coulter, that slogan, true or false, also describes Donald Trump. <laughs> Say it again. We have no permanent enemies and no permanent friends. True. So Annie Leonard, true or false? So I have something in common with Donald Trump then? That's my, (laughs) that's the, yeah. That Greenpeace and Donald Trump have something important in common. True or false, Annie Leonard, you were happy when Donald Trump took the United States out of the trade deal known as TPP or the Trans-Pacific Partnership. True. So you agree with him. Shannon Coulter, true or false, Donald Trump and his three oldest children signed a 2009 letter published in the New York Times supporting an international climate agreement. False. Actually, he did. Didn't know uh, that. Right before Copenhagen, the Trump family signed a letter saying that they wanted a deal in Copenhagen. Shannon Coulter, true or false, a year from now, the Trump brand boycott will be like yesterday's fashion. It already <laughs> is. True. <laughs> it's not uh, a hot brand. Annie Leonard, uh, true or false, Shannon Coulter might consider joining an existing organization pressuring corporations to be better citizens rather than creating yet yet another new group that runs on charitable donations. I don't know because I've never asked her that. Might you consider (laughs) joining another group rather than starting your own? Possibly, yes. Possibly, yes. Um, (laughs) Last two, uh, Shannon Coulter, true or false, you would secretly like Annie Leonard to teach you how to hang off a bridge (laughs) over a river as an an oil tanker comes steaming your way. I would pay money to do that, yes. I'll teach you for free. Sweet. Um, (laughs) True or false, Annie Leonard, you'd like secretly like to go shoe shopping with Shannon Coulter. I have enough shoes, but I'd love to go out for tea. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that ends our lightning round. Let's give them a round for getting through that. And now, here's a Climate One Minute. It's one thing to avoid buying products from companies with a poor record on climate. But what would you risk to stop those companies from doing business at all? Georgia Hursty is a National Warehouse Program Manager with Greenpeace. In 2015, she suspended herself off the St. John's Bridge in Portland in an attempt to block a Shell oil rig, the Fenica, from traveling to the Arctic. We were 13 people across the span of the St. John's Bridge, and we were about 70 feet apart from each other. When the Fenica came towards us, you know, the, I don't know exactly the distance between that drawbridge, but it steamed right up to us, and I hailed the Fenica on the radio and said... Um, in maritime protocol, but this is the activist under the bridge and you are on a collision course and you're putting people's lives at risk. Please stop. And they eventually radioed back and said, this is the Fenica. We're not going to stop. So move something like that. And then I repeated my message. We obviously weren't in a position where we could move. 
then they confirmed that they had stopped. And you could see that the ship had stopped and no longer had a wake. Um, but there was this moment that seemed like kind of forever where everyone was waiting with bated breath. You know, the water was filled with kayakers. There were the activists on the bridge. And though we couldn't speak or talk to each other, we were too far apart. You could feel the kind of the tension in that moment while everyone was waiting to see what the Fenica would do. And whatever time in reality passed, I don't know, eternity <laughs> passed. And then the Fenica slowly started to to turn around. And when it got about... 90 degrees in the other direction. You just heard, before I even could react, you could hear the uproars of cheering from the quayside and from the water, and then it turned all the way around and went back to, back to its port. Georgia Hursty is a National Warehouse Program Manager with Greenpeace. She told her story at Climate One in 2015. Now back to Greg Dalton and our live audience at the Commonwealth Club. Annie Leonard, tell us uh, about some times when... Greenpeace has pressured companies and then collaborated with them. I'm particularly interested in first Facebook, and then we'll talk about Kleenex. So there's lots of times that we do that. In fact, I recently spoke at a business conference, and somebody asked me on the panel, are we better at um, confrontation or collaboration? They said, should we see you as a good cop or a bad cop? And I said, we're really good at both, so it's largely up to you. Um, We'd rather sit around a table than hang from a crane, but we'll do whatever it takes. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, Facebook is one. Uh, The cloud is often seen as something clean because those Mm -hmm. Apple billboards look so clean and nice and their products are all shiny and all this. But the cloud is actually an enormous consumer of energy. If it was a country, it would be the fifth largest country in terms of the amount of energy it produces and and carbon it releases. Um, So we decided that we would do a campaign against large internet companies to get them to commit to renewable energy. And the reason was that would shift the market. If all of these companies started demanding renewable energy, then states would have to invest in renewable energy in order to provide it and attract them with their big clouds to to Kansas or North Carolina, wherever they're going. So we did a big campaign against Facebook. I was unfriend Cole. We said, Facebook, unfriend Cole. Um, At first, they did not respond, or they did not respond the way we wanted them to. They have now completely committed to using renewable energy, as has Google, eBay, Etsy, um, Apple, all of these companies. And we now have very good relationships with them. We're still working on Amazon. We're getting there. Um, We're not quite there yet. But we have great relationships where they come to us and ask for information. We share strategies. We speak together on panels. Actually, spoke together on on this very stage before. So it's a great example is where we we started by doing research. We always politely ask first. If we don't get the response, we will totally do a campaign on them. We will leverage brand vulnerabilities. But our goal is to sit at the table and find solutions. And then there's another campaign, a clear cut aimed at Kleenex. Yeah, this is just one of them. There are literally dozens of these campaigns that have gone through this route. Um, We did a campaign against Kimberly Clark because it was clear-cutting old-growth forests in the boreal forest in Canada for disposable tissues. I mean, it was absolutely crazy. Um, and so we, they, they, have a, they had a very, very weak uh, sustainability policy that still allowed them to do this. We did a campaign against them. It got extremely um, antagonistic for a while. Finally, um, they admitted that they could do better, and they asked us to the table and work it out, and they're doing much, much better now, and we actually have become friends with them. When you started that campaign, though, the people who are involved in sustainability and all large corporations have these people now said, hey, wait, we're the good guys. We're doing more than that other company over there. Uh, And Shannon Coulter, that probably uh, uh, comes to companies you address as well. Um, So first, Annie Leonard, 
a lot of these companies think, hey, we're not, we're good. They like, people like to tell themselves stories that they're good. We're not as bad as those, our competitors. Mm -hmm. So how do you deal with that when they think like, hey, why are you attacking us? We're doing our part incrementally, slowly. We're not the worst. Well, two things is the bar cannot be not as bad as someone else. (laughs) Like we are really in a crisis (laughs) in terms of ecological boundaries. The bar has to be the best we can possibly be. So I like to tell these companies they should welcome us. If we were consultants giving them the kind of information we give them, we would charge a fortune. Like how fortunate for them that we are calling them up and offering to give them free information about flaws in their supply chain and what they can do about it. So they can either fight us and then go pay somebody else who will give them that or let us in and let's talk about it and make it better. So I I think that they should welcome us and see it actually as a sign of affection. When I was just at this business conference, I said, (laughs) you know, we're trying to help you be better. You know, if my kid got a C in in physics, is it a sign of my my, um, investing in her to succeed for me to say, that's fine. A C is fine. No, I'm saying an A, let's go, buddy. Same thing with these companies. You know, I I said in this business conference, most of you, I would like to continue existing. Um, Exxon was in the room, so it wasn't everybody. But most of them I would like to continue to exist, and I'd like them to continue to exist in a way which also allows for humanity to exist. So, you know, I don't think that's asking too much. Can you have empathy for someone who spent their career working at an oil company and thought, hey, we're providing a service that runs the economy? Can you, or does that person, do you think that's a bad person? If it was 1971, maybe. But at this point, um, or if they really have no other options. I mean, sometimes you got to put food on the table and you're trapped. Totally get that. Um, but if you have other options, if you have, if you have education and you have resources and you know how to read science, you really need to get out of the fossil fuel industry. Shannon Coulter, can you have empathy for some of these corporations that are like, hey, we have pressure from Wall Street. I'm just trying to do my job. I'm part of a system. I'm not a bad person. I kind of agree with you. But hey, if we stop selling this brand, then we're going to have every other uh, cause knocking on our door saying, what about this? What about that? Can you have empathy for that corporate person? Yes, definitely. Um, I I was just still thinking about your question about the person who works at the oil company. My dad worked at an oil company for his entire career, and Mm. you know his daughter ended up working in solar to some extent. So I I feel like it's been really interesting to watch oil companies start to buy, you know, alternative energy companies, clean energy companies. There's been there's been some activity around traditional fossil fuel companies buying clean energy companies because ultimately they can see the writing on the wall. Saudi Arabia is one of the countries that's most interested in clean energy in the world right now. They know which direction things are going and they just want to make a profit for their stockholders ultimately. So they're moving in this direction. In terms of what I'm doing, the direction I see things moving is just accountability. Like big corporate entities are becoming more accountable to everyday people in a way that they haven't been before. Corporate social responsibility is a is a huge trend in the corporate world right now because consumers are speaking up, because it's a function, I mean, this boycott is a function as much of our choice as consumers as it is anything else. We have, we have nothing if not choice, right? So it's easy to make consumer choices and say, hey, this company's more transparent on their supply chain than this company. I'm going to shop with them. Or this company you know, has 50% women on their senior executive leadership team, and that matters to me, so I'm going to do business with them. We have so much choice that it's naturally pushing these big, formerly not very responsive entities toward responsiveness and towards transparency and toward accountability, and that's what I get really excited about. How do you talk to your dad about climate change? 
My dad is actually extremely supportive of, of the clean energy movement and knows exactly, you know, what's going on in terms of the climate. And we have a lot of political discussion, but we're, we're usually singing from the same hymn book on that. Any guilt about his role in it? Or did, is it different that, well, we didn't know back then and we know I wouldn't do it now what we know now? My dad was the first person in his family to go to college, um, and he put himself through school. So no, there's not a lot of guilt there. There's a lot of pride in having um, landed a lucrative corporate gig and put his two daughters through college you know, himself so we didn't have to work like he did through school. And yeah, no guilt there. Any, letter to, any difficult conversations in your family about climate or, or what, you're, what you're doing? No, I'm really lucky. Um, my mother was also the first person in her family to go to college, and what she said is um, she just wanted us to be educated because you have so many opportunities if you're educated. So she scrimped and saved and took out student loans and sent me off to this Ivy League college. And when I called her up and said, Mom, I found my passion, and it's garbage, <laughs> she said, I don't understand, but good. <laughs> you know, and and never, um, never tried to steer me in a different path, so I'm very fortunate. Have you made any other sacrifices because of what you know about climate, the very serious situation? Any sacrifices? The things that I've done to reduce my um, climate footprint are actually life enhancers. Um, They're not sacrifices. And the biggest thing that I do that reduces my climate footprint and also makes my life so much richer is I live with a very strong sense of community. I have um, all my best friends and I, over the last 20 years, have gotten six houses in a row. And we have taken down all the fences and we share everything. And so because of this, we have one lawnmower, one scanner, one power drill, like one ladder, um, so that we don't have to all own these things. Also because of this, if I'm in the middle of cooking and I don't have eggs, I don't have to drive to the store. I can just go to my neighbor's house and get it. Um, when, When my daughter wants to learn how to play tennis, I can borrow a tennis racket. All of these things, if you live in community, you have such a richer life and you need to earn and spend less money and also not store all that crap because um, somebody else can store it for you. <laughs> so, um, so for me, that's the biggest way I have reduced my carbon footprint, and it has not been a sacrifice at all. Sounds like a scary level of intimacy. <laughs> They're individual houses, <laughs> which helps a lot. <laughs> Shannon, Col- Shannon Coulter, what have you done to modify your lifestyle or based on <clears throat> what you know about climate? Yeah, my, my husband and I... Um, have kept our lives at a scale that I would describe as pretty small. Even though we could right now afford to move into a bigger house, we live in a fairly tiny little house in Stinson Beach. And uh, we deliberately, you know, don't buy a lot of stuff. We like to travel instead of buying things. We, um, we've, And I'm really grateful... You know, there have been times in my life when the temptation to make the scale of our life bigger has has been there. Mm-hmm. But you know, in, when we go through, when like when grab your wallet happened, I suddenly felt very grateful that um, we hadn't. You know, because it gave me more freedom and flexibility, and, and actually let me use my voice more loudly than I might have otherwise. That's one I'll just confess. We're still working on that in my family, the, the scale and the, some of that stuff. So still a work in progress. Um, Annie Leonard, a lot of this comes down to 
the drivers, the economic drivers, are the need for continual economic growth. You know, the Club of Rome did this report back in the 70s, which talked about climate, mm-hmm. economic growth. That's what drives all of the retirement plans of people listening in this audience, quarterly compounded growth of stocks, more, more, more. And we talk about a lot of systems change here, changing water systems, food systems. But getting that's the system that I think is scary to talk about because it sounds like you're a communist, I mean, mm-hmm. right? That uh, when you, you question that, you start questioning markets. Do you go there? I do go there. Actually, um, the final story of film in the Story of Stuff series is called The Story of Solutions. And what it talks about is that there are some kind of solutions that provide relief or make improvements within the existing system that we're in. And some of those are great solutions, you know, things like getting lead out of gasoline. That did not fundamentally change the system, but that was a very good thing. And Mm -hmm. many children have higher IQ because of it. But those will only take us so far. And so what I argued in this film, The Story of Solutions, which is on YouTube, is what we actually need to do is look at at deeper, more transformative changes of the whole economic system. And one of the big ones, as you mentioned, is this absolute obsession with growth. Currently, the way that we measure success as a society, the way that all all economies do, is just by um, economic growth, which is a measure of how much money change hands is, which is much too closely linked with how many resources you've extracted, produced, consumed, and disposed. And so we need to decouple prosperity from running materials through the system. And we also need to have a more holistic um, approach to how we view our society. Um, One of the problems with economic growth is it doesn't differentiate between expenses that make life better and expenses that make life worse. So if you build a school or you build a prison, or if you spill hazardous waste or if you clean it up, it doesn't matter. You get the same points for either one. Mm -hmm. And so we need something like a genuine progress indicator is one model that looks at how much economic activity is happening and how educated are the kids and how clean is the water and how strong are our communities. You know, a broader way of analyzing and assessing how we're doing. Because right now, you know, we only measure one tiny little aspect of what we're doing. And growth and well-being go together for a while. Um, You know, if you, I think about Little House on the Prairies, remember um, that episode where they got a penny and a piece of peppermint for for Christmas? (laughs) And they were so excited, they had no glass in the windows. Like, in those days, more stuff actually did make you happier. Growth was a good thing. But there comes a point at which increased growth starts undermining our well-being. And if we're focused on growth instead of our well-being, we're missing it. We need to focus on well-being, and growth is one of many avenues to get there. But growth is not the goal in and of itself. We're talking about uh, social change and advocacy with Shannon Coulter, co-founder of Grab Your Wallet campaign, and Annie Leonard, executive director of Greenpeace USA. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to invite your participation with one one part comment or question at the microphone <laughs> back there. Please briefly identify yourself. Uh, so go. <laughs> Hello, my name is Aaron Choate. Thank you all for your great conversation. Um, Annie Leonard, you mentioned your uh, visceral experience of clear cuts in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, I'm also wondering about the influence of the WTO protests, the battle in Seattle, and whether that's influential for both of you, and then how those have been um, connected to more recent um, activities such as the Occupy movement, the Women's March. Annie Leonard. Um yeah, it was cool to have the WTO protests in Seattle because all of my friends came to my hometown. It was great. Um, for me, the biggest um, 
impact that that had on me was showing me the power that, that comes if we can work across silos. You, you hear about the Teamsters and the Turtles. We had labor union and third world farmers and reproductive justice activists and so many different people coming together. And when we come together, it's, it's really true that, that the people united will not be defeated. Like, it's actually true. But we have to get together and talk and listen. So for me, that was the, the biggest impact of that. And then we won. That, that was also nice. Well, wasn't Seattle quite violent? There was a small group of people that were violent um, towards the big chain stores that they felt were sucking money out of the community. There actually was a political astuteness to it. Um, they didn't go after the local independent stores. Nonetheless, we can't let a small group of opportunists um, hijack a really powerful people power moment, and they will try to do that. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. I'm Elois Harmon, and I'm wondering, given that we can't count on much help uh, for the climate from the White House, do you think that we've reached a tipping point with respect to corporations picking up the ball? Shannon Coulter. <clears throat> no, I don't. I don't think we've reached a tipping point. I mean, I think that corporations can continue to work on the issue together in really powerful, visible ways. Um, there was an alliance recently of corporations of like 500, I believe, Nike and Coca-Cola and like huge, huge co- corporations coming together saying, you know, we are committing to going 100% clean energy in the future. Um, I, I think that's we're going to continue to see that, and it's it's important. These next, I mean, four to eight years, I don't even know what to say about that. I'll let Annie speak to that. But, I mean, we have a cli- climate denier as the head of the EPA and the EPA staff aren't allowed to even say the phrase climate change anymore, so it's, it's pretty egregious. Um, I can only hope it's a blip. But some people are looking to, yeah, to companies to stay in Paris, for example. Absolutely. Uh, rather than if, if there's not going to be federal policy, the corporations want to do the right thing because their, their customers want to, their employees want to, that they'll yeah, be a voice. I mean, just know. like we saw with the Super Bowl advertising, you know, that was all geared toward inclusivity and respect for immigrants and na- America is a nation of immigrants. These companies know that the future of their bottom line are people younger than me. So I think that they're, you know, they know which messages resonate and which don't. And fortunately, people younger than me care a lot about climate and environment. So they know that. Let's go to our next question for Shannon Coulter and Annie Leonard. Hi, Megan Morris, hip investor and full disclosure. What I do for a living is try to get people to vote with their dollars, with their consumption choices and their investment choices. And awesome. The reason I came tonight is because an invite it said, oh, have you heard of anyone switching their bank account because of the Dakota Access Pipeline? Neither have we. And I actually have been telling people, you know, to switch bank accounts for three years and feel for the first time that people are listening and they're taking action. And I have seen just in the last couple of months a lot more people actually moving their money than in the last three years when I've been having conversations. So I'd just like to see your thoughts Recently, we, we, you know, you spoke a little bit about corporations realizing that everything they do is transparent and seeing a lot more momentum. But across the board, can you talk about the momentum and everything that you've spoken about tonight recently in the last couple of months? Shannon Coulter, other issues. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's I mean, what you're describing is happening in my household. So it's near and dear to my heart. And I think it's happening more than we more than the companies involved would like to admit that it's happening. And thank you for your work. I think it's really important. It's it's all connected to this conversation of, you know, how where do we put our dollars? How does it align with our values? We have a ton of choice. 
companies need to start getting transparent about their values so we can make decisions about how well they align or don't align. And if you don't do that these days, that translates to opacity. If you're not willing to say what those values are and be on the record about it, guess what? I'm going to assume the worst, and I'm going to go with a company that does. So it's, it's absolutely imperative. I talked to a woman today who's you know, organizing this group of high-powered European women investors, and they're creating, creating an organization to talk about you know, divesting their investments from companies where the values don't align and divesting from companies that don't have you know, strong women leadership. And I think it's, it's happening at a pace and a scale that is really hard to even estimate right now. There's so much energy for it. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Hi, my name is Melissa Miranda, and I'm an entrepreneur in residence at a venture capital fund um, for Annie Leonard. So how do we solve the fact that we still need clothing and we still need stuff in a way that's compatible with your values? And we have to assume that there's not enough hand-me-downs to go around because clothing wears out. And we can all live next to our six best friends and share everything. <laughs> so I want to be clear. I'm not opposed to clothes. I think, <laughs> I, I think clothes are something that we will need after the transition to a clean economy and even during the transition to a clean, <laughs> clean economy. I'm not opposed to consumption. Um, what I'm opposed to is consumption that trashes the planet, you know, consumption that, that pushes us beyond ecosystem boundaries. I'm opposed to consumption that poisons us. There's a lot of hazardous chemicals in our everyday products from our carpet store upholstery to our Pantene hair conditioner. Um, so I'm opposed to products that poison us. I'm also concerned about consumption that we can f- confuse our sense of self-worth or our sense of meaning and purpose. That's where I think our relationship to consumption has gotten out of hand. I have totally no problem with people buying clothes and shoes and food and coffee and whatever else they need. But if that consumption is trashing the planet, poisoning us, or if we've gotten confused about our sense of self-worth being associated to that consumption, that's where it worries me. And I think things start to go astray. I interviewed Yvonne Chouinard, the founder and owner of Patagonia, and he said, you know, I've admitted that uh, a lot of shopping is because people are bored. And uh, there's clothes. They're, they're bored. They're looking for meaning. They're looking for identity. I mean, there's a lot of, of studies about the reasons why people shop. I mean, Juliet Shore is an incredible academic who wrote a book, The Overspent American, that looks at why people buy stuff. It's almost never because they need that thing. And that the environmental, economic, emotional, and social toll of buying excessive stuff that we don't need and looking to consumption to fill other human needs is just not just neither sustainable nor fun. So I'm saying let's do something that is sustainable and fun, and that's buy less stuff and engage with each other in community instead. Dressed. <laughs> let's go to our next question for Annie Leonard and Shannon Coulter. Catherine uh, Tynan, um, I have a small consulting practice here in San Francisco. None of you have mentioned uh, healthcare and the impact of. Um, uh, choice on healthcare and then the impact of healthcare on the environment. A lot of people are working in this country because they need access to healthcare. Um, a lot of ma- people are making Faustian bargains with companies because they need healthcare. Um, and uh, do you have any um, thoughts on, 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 on how this sort of Faustian bargain is, is disturbing the system um, in, in the US? I actually do. Um, I have a a lot of thoughts on this. When people ask me what's the number one thing that we could do 
to um, improve sustainability in this country, I say provide national health care. Without a doubt, that is the number one environmental policy that we could adopt. And the reason are the very things that you said. There are so many people that are like bonded labor tied to soul-killing planet trashing 40 plus hour a week job to get health care. It's bad for the planet. It's bad for our emotions. And we have to go to the mall and go shopping. My sister works like crazy. And she told me she goes shopping because sometimes she just wants to be somewhere where the most challenging thing is, does her shirt, shoes match her purse? Like, it's just <laughs> such a relief. Mm-hmm. If we were free to choose our own hours, if we were ch- free to choose to invest in community rather than continuing to work, which, which we could do if we had national health insurance, we would see a reduction in our carbon emissions. We would see a reduction in consumer debt. We'd see a reduction in social isolation. I literally think that's the best thing we could do for our country, which is why I think one of the best leverage points, if we want to figure out how to live sustainably, is um, fight for national health care. Never heard that one before. That's really interesting. Uh, I'd like to hear from each of you. Uh, climate is often thought of as a very intellectual, cerebral, factual uh, concern. Uh, Annie Leonard, when have you had a real gut experience about climate that, that really hits you at a different emotional level about the magnitude of it or, or perhaps the awe or the, the promise of it, but something that was, I mean, you, other than when you went to, the, to Fresh Kill uh, and saw uh, the garbage? Um, well, I travel a lot, and one of the things I do every place I go is ask people, is the weather changing and what's that like? And it is amazing. Every single place that I go, people say that. I was in Canada, and they said their forests were threatened because the winter no longer gets cold enough to kill a certain beetle that is eating away at the trees, but usually the population is kept in check in the cold winters, and so their forests are in trouble. I was in South Africa, and they said a certain fruit wasn't bearing fruit because the birds or bugs, something that flies, didn't come to pollinate it because the weather was off. Um, I was in Bishop, and they said it used to be two feet of snow there every winter. Now it's a couple inches, like everywhere you go. And so what really strikes me is that this is not something in the future. This is not something for our children. It is here. It is now. And if you just start asking people, there is so much evidence. I'm glad you said it's factual because I hear so many people say he doesn't believe in climate change. I'm like, it is not a belief system. (laughs) (laughs) Belief belief has nothing to do do with this. And so I think we need to push back when we say someone doesn't believe in climate change. It's not, it's not, it doesn't, has nothing to do with beliefs. People don't accept. Uh, Shannon Coulter, have you experienced climate change in a visceral way? Yeah, it's always been emotional for me. I mean, I, when I was a little girl founded a club called the ladybugs in my neighborhood to pick up garbage from the forest floor. That was our mission. And it's, you know, it was emotionally upsetting to me to see that garbage on the forest floor. And it's that, you know, that has been a through line in my life, that emotional reaction to what we were doing to our planet is it's always been like the core of it is emotional, not intellectual. It's, it's, on an emotional level, it's really upsetting and not understandable to me to to see what happens. I was babysitting once for my best friend's son, and um, he was just like maybe four at the time, and I was reading him a bedtime story, and it, it, was, like, <laughs> it was like a really sanctimonious bedtime story about climate change. And um, he looked up at me and he said, um, "If Shannon, if we know that if cars are bad for the environment, why do we still drive them? And I, I had no good answer for him. I had none. 
And it really brought me back to that place of like, gosh, it's, you know, a, a child can understand why what we're doing is wrong and bad. Why don't we stop? Yeah. People will look back at us and say, you knew what, what were you doing? What were you thinking? The way that some people say the way that we look back at slavery. Yeah. Like how, what, I was how? just going to say the best explanation I've ever heard is how entwined slavery was with our economic systems and how much work it took to push out of that. And yet it didn't cost that much of, it didn't have the economic disruption that people argued at the time that that it would have. Can I just give an example on slavery? There was a very interesting debate during slavery about those who said we should stop slavery slavery by not buying slave-produced goods. It was called the free produce (laughs) movement. And they said they won't participate in the economy by buying slave-produced goods. There were other people that said the many, many hours that you're going to spend going out of your way to not buy slave-produced goods could be fight, fighting slavery. And there was, it was a very interesting debate, so it's, there's, it's a corollary with where we are right now. Go direct. We've been talking about the impact of personal purchases and individual action in addressing climate disruption and other issues. I'm Greg Dalton, and my guests were Annie Leonard, creator of The Story of Stuff and executive director of Greenpeace USA, and Shannon Coulter, co-founder of the hashtag GrabYourWalletBoycott, aimed at Trump family businesses. Podcasts of this and other Climate One shows recorded with a live audience are available wherever you podcast. When you download one, please leave a comment or give us a rating. We want to know what you think of our conversations on energy, food, water, technology, and more. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time, everybody. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.